Hello and welcome to the symposium. Today I'm very pleased to be joined by Bo, and we're going to talk about Stoicism, and more specifically about Seneca. Seneca is a very interesting uh, Stoic, and he's one of the three main Stoics that we have uh, a substantial amount of work to judge them from. The other two are Epictetus, that we have dealt with in Symposium 20, I think, and we were, when we talked about his uh, Stoic manual, and also Marcus Aurelius and his meditations, which, hmm. if uh, this goes well, perhaps we could uh, visit in a relatively short time. Hmm. So I think uh, Seneca is a very interesting figure because a long time ago, when I first read him, I wasn't particularly impressed. But uh, now that I focused a bit more and read him you know, a bit more deeply, I was a bit impressed. Mm. And I want to say that he is very modern in a sense. And what do I mean by that? He is very much interested in things people are nowadays interested in, such as self-development, self-growth, you know, how to think about life. And mm. uh, in that respect, I think he has a lot to say to us. Mm. Mm. I'm quite a big fan of Seneca. I, I like Socrates and I like Seneca. Yeah. They're probably my two favourite ancient philosophers. Um, a lot of people like them. Yeah, um, Yeah, and Seneca, a lot of his stuff, uh, his letters um, that he wrote while he was exiled on Corsica. That's a lot of the stuff that survives of Seneca, isn't it? And uh, yeah, like all Stoics, like all Stoicism, um, it is sort of a philosophy, it's sort of a practical philosophy. It's actually supposed to, and does, hopefully, <laughs> sort of help you in your real life. Yeah. Um, it's not all that abstract quite often. Yes. Um, so it can actually help. What is really distinctive about his writings is that he was much more of an essayist uh, as opposed to a treatise writer. So, for instance, you, he's not writing a metaphysical treatise like Aristotle does. Mm. And he is much less interested in metaphysics than Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius are. He's uh, very, he isn't very interested into metaphysics. Obviously, he does subscribe to a Stoic metaphysics, and I think letter 65 is where he is uh, mostly developing some metaphysical ideas, but he's primarily interested in ethics. He is overwhelmingly mm. so. And um, he sort of um, engages in a criticism of Aristotle and Plato and their metaphysical propensity, and he thinks that metaphysics is way simple, way simpler than they portray to be. Mm. But le let me just say one thing, that we know of Seneca's writings from his letters to Lucilius, mm -hmm. which he wrote uh, during the end of his life, I think the last year of his life, in 64 to 65 AD. And we also have some tragedies from him and some uh, small essays. And he also has a very interesting title, called depumpingification, something like that, apokolokithokintosis. It's, uh, you know, one of the weird titles in philosophy, but mm. his letters are supposed to be you know, one of the most philosophical specimen of his work. Mm. Mm. And they are really brilliant. And they're really easy to read, but that is one interesting thing. That is a bit elusive because he may start talking about something that seems completely irrelevant in the beginning, like the house of someone. And then he's going to throw in a gem of thought after three or four pages mm. where you 
you're guaranteed to think that what you thought of as boring Seneca pages suddenly are completely different. Mm. Mm. And that is an interesting thing, that his speech is very direct. Mm. You don't get mm. the sense that he's speaking to a classroom, like, for instance, Aristotle uh, gives the impression of. Mm. He gives the impression that he's speaking directly to you. Mm. He does mention Lucilius sometimes, where he says, you know, my dear Lucilius, and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's like someone actually talking to you. Mm. You, you don't lose anything by just uh, ditching the name of Lucilius and just think he is actually talking to you. It is quite accessible in that way. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Even, even Aristotle can be a bit difficult. Like the metaphysics of Aristotle, you have to very, very carefully read it, or I do, yeah. <laughs> you have to quite carefully read it and make sure you're following along with what he's saying. Yeah. You can't just scan it. Yes. Uh, you have to pay attention, work fairly hard, really. And that's just, and Aristotle isn't particularly known as one of the more uh, difficult philosophers. But Seneca yeah. is is good for that. The letters of Seneca are good yeah. for that. You can just sort of dive in and um, yeah. and you sort of, you get what, what it, you know, yeah. what it says on the tin is what you get. <laughs> so, fun, um, fun thing that you mention it, because um, Aristotle is very dry. His treatises are very dry. Some of them can be really tough reads. Yeah. But uh, we are so. also told by Cicero that he had some plays and some dialogues that were just beautifully written. We have... Uh, none of them survives if they existed. I don't think he... I, I sort of think that, uh, you know, if Cicero said it, most probably it would be correct. Mm. But um, it's a pity that we don't have it. But at least it's good that we think that Aristotle had a more lively side to, it, to him mm -hmm. because some of his uh, writings are a bit uh, dry. Mm -hmm. But uh, Seneca's writings aren't like that and you don't get a 400 pages treatise in metaphysics and talking about substance and uh, essence. Some, some philosophy is almost impenetrable, right? I mean, I don't know, somebody like uh, Hegel or Wittgenstein or something. It's very, very... Difficult. It is difficult um, yeah. with the best will in the world. I think a lot of people read that sort of thing and convince themselves they know exactly what's being said, but it's very difficult. Um, well, so Seneca's not like that, right? Yeah. The letters of Seneca, you can just yeah. dive in and read, and uh, he's not trying to obfuscate very well, much. Well, he's not a philosopher's so. philosopher. So he's okay. not a, someone who is talking primarily about the abstract aspects of the discipline. He's talking about the as aspects of the discipline that are directly relevant to ethics and how to live a good life and mm. how to live a happy life. Mm. Because mm. self-contentment is one of the most central aspects of virtue for him. Mm. He thinks that the Stoic sage is feels self-content. Is self-content. They don't have worries or fears or things like that. So. Mm. He is not like Hegel, someone who's writing about the history of philosophy. Mm. And in order to understand him, you need to have a good grasp of the history of philosophy and of history as well. Mm. But most people who read Hegel don't. Uh, he's someone who's really plain. He's, a, mm. he's talking to a friend of his, Lucilius, who's literally asking him advice for how to live a better life. So, and also he's, He's talking. You can also see him as a motivational speaker in some <laughs> cases. Mm, it, yeah. it, it's a bit cheesy, but I think that there, there's no problem with this. No, I like if, it. I like it. Yeah. I like plain speaking. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, the carpe diem sort of thing, you know, seize the day and mm. stuff like that. Mm. I don't have any problem with it. A lot of people shun it. I think what is something where we should look down upon is the way that these slogans that do contain words of wisdom are used in marketing, for instance, and people who don't know and haven't done the math. And they, for instance, they're saying, okay, seize the day, and then they show you a soft drink or something. <laughs> yeah, that, th this is something that <laughs> obviously communicates uh, that uh, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but uh, when I get the impression that someone like Seneca does it, and someone who knows what they're talking about do it, I don't mind. I think actually it's pretty constructive. <laughs> <laughs> So, I definitely think that's that's deliberately the case. Yes. Seneca, I, I would have thought, I think it's true to say, is deliberately trying to uh, speak plainly yes. and to reduce things sometimes to what we might in the modern day call a soundbite or something. Uh, I think that's very deliberate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, good thing he, he wasn't Spartan. So we have, a th th uh, thankfully, more than a soundbite. But uh, yeah, that, that's good because he's a really beautiful writer mm. and uh, he, he has very rich things to say. So what we should uh, remember when we read him is that he is a Stoic and he develops Stoicism, but he isn't someone who is afraid of saying every now and then that Epicurus has a good idea. And Stoics and Epicureans, they were the two main mm. Hellenistic schools of philosophy that were in rivalry, mm. but he isn't afraid to say that Epicurus has a good idea here or there. Mm. Yeah. So he is interested. He does have an open mind and he reads other people and he tries to see if he can accommodate good uh, insights of theirs into his philosophy. Mm. He, he doesn't seem to be a very dogmatic thinker. Mm. Mm. And also he had a very interesting life because sometimes people accuse Stoics of being a bit detached from the world of current affairs. Mm as opposed to just being psychologically detached. That is something that is praised by Stoics. He had a very turbulent life also. He, let me just say one thing, and I know that you have way more things to add, especially when it comes to his relationship with the Emperor Nero. Okay. Um, yeah. So he, his name was Luci Lucius Aeneas Seneca. He was born in Cordoba in Spain around mm -hmm. 4 BC. Yeah. And died around 65 AD. Yeah. And uh, he was basically ordered to commit suicide because he was linked with the Pisonian conspiracy against spoiler alert. Nero. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> 2,000 year old spoiler yeah. alert. And to spoiler alert, Seneca is dead. <laughs> so so, so he, he was also sentenced to death by successive emperors. I think both Caligula mm. and Claudius uh, sentenced him to commit suicide, but they suspended it. And he spent eight years in exile in Corsica between 41 and 49 AD because he was accused of having a relationship with Caligula's sister. In 49 AD, he became a praetor and became a tutor to Nero. And he was acting as an unofficial chief minister for about around eight years. And I've heard from what I've seen, you obviously know much more about it than I do, some people have said that the first years of Nero were years of sound imperial government, and a lot of people think that this was Seneca's doing. 
and uh, afterwards he was uh, he he lost favor, mm. and uh, he was asking repeatedly to to go back to his mm. home and to retire. For uh, for many years, Nero was not uh, accepting it, and uh, he sort of uh, f- uh, managed to convince him towards the end, but not for long. Mm. So. What was it about Seneca and Nero? Because Seneca seems to me, like Aristotle, to be one of the very few philosophers to have been who have been teachers of really, you know, uh, important rulers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, in the ancient world, it seems that not not all philosophers thought this, but certainly Aristotle thought it. For example, that one of the best things, one of the highest things, a philosopher could do is to to be given the role of teaching a great king or an emperor or something. That's what Aristotle thought. And Aristotle did teach Alexander, we're told, at least for a while. Um, So one of the greatest things you could ever aspire to as an ancient philosopher is to get to be the tutor or something for a a great king or the emperor of Rome, the ruler of the world, right? Um, So, yeah, Seneca had uh, quite a long and uh, eventful life, very eventful life. They think he had um, consumption, what they called consumption, what we now call TB, from quite an early life. So he was lucky to make old bones at all. Um, but he, it seems he suffered from TB. He talks a um, lot about this in mm, his letters. And mm. he also says that he had asthma and it was very painful. Yeah, he certainly had some sort of respiratory issues. Um, but yeah, so the, it was only, you know, like the last portion of his life, really, where he's he's bound up with the story of... Lucius Anahinobarbus, otherwise known as Nero, Nero Caesar. Um, so he was extremely famous in his own lifetime, Seneca, as a great thinker, as one of the great men of Rome. Um, but yeah, he had been in the age of Caligula and Claudius, had got himself in a bit of trouble um, uh, for adultery, essentially. As lucky not to find himself executed, but was exiled. Claudius, in the end, exiled him to... Corsica for a long time, 10 years, 8 years, something like that, a long time, big chunk of his lifetime he spent on Corsica, which he hated because, as we said, he was a man of the world, he was a statesman, he was, uh, you know, not just merely this abstract thinker detached from politics, he was involved in it. And anyway, he had a reputation in his own lifetime as one of the great thinkers of Rome. And anyway, Nero's mother, Agrippina the Younger, um, she wanted, kind of obviously, the best for her son. And it was clear by the time Nero was a teenager that he was a, a loose cannon. Nowhere near as insane as the, the last years of Nero got. You know, a true bloodthirsty sort of monster, antichrist type cra- craziness. <laughs> um, but still, as a younger man, it was clear he was, you know, much more in the mould of a Tiberius or a Caligula, probably. And so... Agrippina the Younger wanted um, a tutor that would hopefully sort of calm him down and make and make Nero, the young Nero, um, you know, a good ruler. Um, because if nothing else, Agrippina the Younger had hoped that she could control Nero and rule through him, certainly if you believe the sources. So a quick word on the sources. We know a fair bit about Seneca, not just from his own writings and letters which survive, but also because he's mentioned in Diocassius, he's mentioned in Suetonius. There's a great bit in Tacitus, in the Annals of Tacitus, super, uh, a, a, fair, a fair chunk 
all about Seneca and Nero in Tacitus, and that's sort of the best, the best source material about sort of Seneca's downfall in the end. And so, yeah, Nero became emperor very young. He was 17. And Seneca had only really been his tutor for about a year or so. So the thing to mention about that, I think, is that by the time you're 16 years old, and this is even more true in the ancient world, I think, by the time you're 16, year old, 16 uh, things are quite often already set in motion. It's when you're a small child that you're truly malleable, right? It's when you're seven, eight, nine, ten year old or something yeah. that you're truly malleable. By the time you're 13 or 14 or 15, um, a teacher or a tutor can't really completely mould you anymore. Yes. So Nero was already 16. He's like nearly a man by that point in the ancient world. Um, so Seneca was sort of up against it from day one to try and make Nero sort of a great just ruler. Um, and anyway, as you say, the story goes, if you believe sort of Suetonius and Testus, is that the first few years of Nero's reign, through Seneca and Burrus and his own mother, Agrippina, they were able to sort of control him. Um, and the first few years of his reign weren't these blood-soaked, tyrannical, end-of-days style, um, just terror. Um, because that is what Nero's reign descended. And Nero ruled for quite a long time, sort of 14 years. Um, and yeah, most historians, at least Testus and Suetonius, both say that it was down to Seneca, or Seneca seems to be uh, fairly responsible for those earlier years being kept, Nero being kept in check. But in the end, Nero sort of realised that he could, if he did away with Seneca and his own mother and Burrus, the leader of the Praetorians, um, he could then sort of do whatever he wanted. Yes. Um, become sort of an absolute monarch uh, yeah. with zero checks and balances on him, literally no one telling him no. Um, and so Seneca did, was sort of in the end asked to, co to commit suicide. There's a question here that arises with respect to Seneca as a teacher because some people may rush to say that Seneca wasn't a particularly good um, teacher because his main pupil, let's say Nero, turned out to be an absolute monster. But uh, I think also age is important. As you mentioned, 16 is... Uh, you're somehow settled at 16. And um, especially if you want to develop yourself or you want to just do anything you want. Because... I think one of the main core uh, core ideas in ancient ethics and in every ethics is has to do with a form of discipline that uh, at least it's a decent person around 16 years old will think that they don't know already everything and that they do have room for improvement and they want to improve. And I don't know if anything like that was in Nero. But there's also another question because whether whether we would say that someone like Nero was psychopathic, because, for instance, in, in Caligula, we, we know that he did suffer a sort of abuse in Capri by T Tiberius. Uh, am I wrong in saying this? But did Nero suffer from something like that? Do we know of his childhood? Yeah. No, I don't think so. So Caligula, um, look back at the old Epochs episode where I talk about both Caligula and Nero. 
Caligula, it's I think my it's opinion. Eighty-nine and ninety-one. I watched them recently. Oh right, okay, yeah. great. They're the numbers to look yeah. them up. Um, Caligula, it seems to me, or if you believe the sources, does seem to have been suffering from an actual uh, malady of some type. He, he apparently had very little sleep um, and had terrible headaches, and sometimes was a lot more lucid than others. He thought himself mad. Suetonius, because uh, there's the, the bit in Tacitus about Caligula is almost entirely missing, but in Suetonius, um, there are question marks over Suetonius as a source, nevertheless. Suetonius says that Caligula thought himself to be mad. Yeah. Um, so it seems to me that Caligula um, was suffering from sort of some sort of actual clinical issue, psychological, mental health issue. Um, doesn't seem so much the case with Nero. There's not really anything like that. For example, as a child or as a young man, um, he doesn't seem to, there's, there's no stories of him doing anything crazy. Another example is Domitian, a later emperor, the second son of Vespasian. There's stories of him where he would do things that sort of a serial killer, the pathologies that, that uh, a serial killer might do like delighting in seeing animals hurt or pinning out flyers, weird things like this. Nero didn't seem to have done stuff like that. It seems to have, again, if you believe the sources, slid fairly gradually into vice, yeah. all sorts of sexual vice and all sorts of just um, torture and murder and things. One thing, I would like, one thing I would say, though, about Nero is that very soon after he became emperor, within a year, I believe, um, he had his main rival for the throne poisoned, Britannicus, um, the legitimate son of the last emperor, Claudius. So Claudius had a son, Britannicus, who was like a year younger or about a year younger than Nero. But he had also, Claudius, had married his own niece, Agrippina the Younger, Nero's mother, uh, which was incestuous. Anyway, he did, after that, he also adopted Nero. Mm. So Claudius had an adopted son, Nero, and his own son, Germanicus. Within about a year of Claudius dying and Nero being the emperor, Nero poisoned Germanicus. And even his own mother, Agrippina, who was completely ruthless, uh, was sort of shocked by that. So this idea that Nero was a good boy until a fair few years into his reign and sort of slowly slid towards vice and murder and things, uh, doesn't it doesn't really hold up because quite quickly he mm. committed a, a sort of fairly flagrant murder like that. I don't so that's so that's one last thing to say. So that's why I think it was Seneca was up against it. He was already dealing with, yes. if not an actual monster, um, a monster in waiting. Yes, I don't. I, I my personal opinion. I don't think there was much Seneca could have done. It's not really fair to blame Seneca for Nero, but. Essentially, he did fail to create a good ruler. That is fair to say, he failed. Yes, yeah. But I, I don't think he ever really could have. Yeah. Um, I, but to be also fair to him, I don't think that um, people say... I don't get the impression that people who say this say that Nero was a good person in the beginning, as much as, as you said before, that the people around him, Seneca, Agrippina, the younger, and Burrus, they could sort of convince him to take some decisions that were sa relatively sound, 
And then when they left and he did away with them, all sorts of uh, hell broke loose. Mm. Um, so l let me just ask you another thing, because the, also the issue with his death is is interesting, because from what I've uh, read, he was asked to be uh, a member of a conspiracy to murder Nero, mm -hmm. and he declined, but he didn't also give them away. Yeah. Say, and yeah. it was found out and uh, Nero ordered him to commit suicide. Mm. And there's a very w weird uh, story about him committing suicide. And I think this comes from Tacitus, that he says that um, he told his slaves and uh, all his friends there, don't cry for me, where's mm. your stoic uh, approach? Mm. You know, what uh, I've been teaching you. And he... and. Um, he said, bring me my will. They didn't allow him to write down his will or to pass any property or something. And they said that uh, his wife then wanted to commit suicide with him. And uh, he said that uh, I wouldn't want you, at least from Tacitus, he said that he hugged her. He was a bit emotional there. He, didn't, he wasn't there also stoic about it. And uh, he accepted it. And he said that something like... Uh, I gave you, I tried to plea for you to be left in silent, in, you know, in life, and, but uh, you chose glory, and I can't say you no to this. Mm -hmm. And that they both committed suicide, but it wasn't particularly, a f it, it didn't go through with his wife, I think. Did he, fa did she fail to, commit suicide. I can't remember, to be perfectly yeah. honest. I can't remember. I'm not sure if Testus or Suetonius go into all that much detail about it. Um, but certainly Seneca's execution stroke suicide. Yeah. Um, I've heard it said, and I sort of agree with it, I think, that it's sort of his crowning glory in a way. We don't really think of it in the modern world like that, but it was sort of his, the, the, the sort of the final massive statement yeah. of his career of Stoicism. Yeah. And there's some parallels there with Socrates, don't you think? Because Socrates was condemned to death and yes. uh, you had to essentially commit suicide. He wasn't sort of hung or beheaded. I think he was you know, forced to drink poison. Um, but yeah, so there's some parallels there. And um, yeah, as a Stoic, again, if you believe the accounts, mainly, mainly in Tacitus, um, it was sort of the perfect stoic death. Yes. Right? Uh, because that's one of the things I'm sure we'll talk about the, the thought of Seneca in a bit, but he did write and talk and think a lot about death. Yes. During his life. Um, because the Stoics, Stoicism, is a lot of it is about how to deal with, in, in real life, practical terms, how to deal with um, sort of, disappointment and reverses and bad things that go on in your life. Um, and the biggest one of those, I suppose, is your own death. How do you really process and deal with the knowledge that you're going to die and that life itself is fleeting and fragile yeah. and you could die tomorrow, you could die today, you could go to sleep tonight and just not wake up. Um, how do you deal with that? properly. And so Seneca spent a lot of time and energy on that. And so when it when he was faced with his own death, um, he he
dealt with it in sort of a fantastically stoic way, right? Um, so in that sense, it's sort of his crowning glory. It's an odd way to think of uh, an execution stroke suicide, but but there you go. That's one of the reasons why he's, I think, so famous. Obviously, his own writings and the fact that he survives uh, quite a vivid account in Tacitus. Yeah. Anyone that appears in Tacitus and or Suetonius is, uh, you know, sort of lives on through the ages, don't yes. they? So. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so I think we need to talk about Seneca as a Stoic, some okay. general stuff about Seneca as a Stoic, and then we're going to be a bit more specific about his conception of philosophy, what he says about friendship, what he says about slaves and gladiators, and uh, grief, death, suicide, wisdom, reason, uh, freedom, and divinity. So okay. we're going to give you some very interesting topics today mm. to think about. So. For Seneca, the main job of philosophy is counsel. And this would uh, tie really well with what you said before about uh, Aristotle saying that one of the greatest things is to, for a philosopher is to counsel the great ruler. Mm. So for, for Seneca is uh, essentially the role of philosophy. But Seneca is very therapeutic in his thought. So he's also saying that counsel is something that we can also give to ourselves. Oh, right. yeah, yeah. First and foremost. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, he will say at some point that uh, I'm trying to become my own friend. <laughs> so <laughs> as a Stoic, he's very much interested into the psychological aspect of life. And uh, Stoics have some mantras. Uh, they, they have many, but I'm going to share um, four. And because uh, they are good to contextualize Seneca's thought. One is, as we mentioned before, uh, memento mori, that remember that you are going to die. Mm -hmm. This is something that he says it's really massive. We should constantly remember this. Also, we should live in conformity with nature. This is one of the main Stoic principles. They identify the good with virtue. This is really interesting because serves as a, an important reminder for a contemporary audience that when ancients talked about the good life, they thought of the good life as an active life, as an, a life of virtue. Mm -hmm. And frequently the, one of the active virtues was reason. That's why you, know, you see almost everywhere in the, that the good life is the life of reason. And a lot of other thinkers that wouldn't necessarily say so they do engage in conceptual engineering and try to put into that into somewhere. Mm. So, and the, the other bit, which is the most important one to remember the psychological aspect of uh, Stoicism is the idea that frequently our ideas about things are more hurtful than things themselves. So that mm. is something that is really good to show the realm of the Stoic. So for the Stoic, the Stoic says we should embark upon a journey of self-development and self-mastery that is primarily psychological. So for instance, a lot of people were telling Seneca that they were accusing him of being incredibly rich. Mm. Say, how can you be a Stoic and be rich? Mm. And Seneca would have a very, a perfect response that, you know, Stoicism is not about what you do so much in real life. 
It's not about not engaging in, in the realm of public affairs. It is primarily about how you think about what you're doing. So for mm-hmm. instance, he would say that you can have two people who engage in public affairs, one of which is stoic and one of which isn't. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.